I am a human being and I kill human beings. Before I knew it, I'd fired four shots at the door. I kept on shouting for Reva to phone the police. Tests are underway to determine if a serial killer is on the loose in Centurion, Pretoria. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. In South Africa, 58 people are murdered every day. These are the stories of the criminals and the cops who catch them. I think society deserves to be protected from me and from others like me. My name is Paul Llewellyn and I am curious about Africa's killers, criminals and the cops who catch them. Joining me to discuss crime on the continent, as always, is Jared Labaskachny, the former cop and current head of LNS Threat Management, who led the investigative psychology section of the South African Police Service from 2001 until 2016. In his time there, he worked on over 300 serial murder and rape cases, and he is the profiler. Please visit our YouTube page and subscribe. That's youtube.com forward slash C forward slash profiler Africa. Please do hit the subscribe button when you're there. We're available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Simply search Profiler. And again, please share the link with your friends. You can engage with us on our social media pages. Our Twitter and Instagram handle is at Profiler Africa. Please also join the group on Facebook. If you have any questions or suggestions, we're always happy to hear them. You can also email us on ProfilerAfricaInfo at gmail.com. Uh, we post crime scene pics, evidence pics, images of the killers we cover and their victims. We put some interesting stuff on our social pages, so do check them out. Um, also, a new one. Um, we, Jared and I had the, had the fortune recently to be in Cape Town um, working on uh, some episodes of the true crime series that we're producing. And uh, we met up with Nicole Engelbrecht of True Crime South Africa. Do go and check out truecrimesouthafrica.com. If you listen to our podcast, I have no doubt that you've been listening to Nicole for um, for a long time now. Um, she's been doing the podcast for a number of years, and it's very, very popular. Um, and we're looking to do some um, collaborative and interesting stuff with Nicole. Um, hopefully, we're going to rope her in to help us out a little bit with some of the, the television content that we're producing as well. Why? Because, you know, we like to, uh, you know, collaboration is the name of the game, isn't it? And finding cool people to work with that have shared interests and uh, are, are part of the same effort is always a good thing. And Jared's been on the podcast. You've been on True Crime South Africa, have mm. you not? I have indeed had a nice interview by Nicole. I think it was around time just after my book came out. So she did an interview about that. And yeah, yeah. yeah definitely go have a listen to that. Um, please do go check out that. If you haven't listened to True Crime South Africa, do go check them out and have a listen. Um, you know, we're all trying to tell great stories of um, South African true crime. Before we get to today's uh, discussion, uh, we've also, just to note, we did give our give the book away. We gave our book away to a lovely gentleman by the name of Henry. Um, Jared, you know Henry. Yeah, so when I asked you to give me the phone number so I could make arrangements to send the book to him, I realized I actually have that contact number in my uh in my contacts, and Henry is actually a uh, a new member of the National Prosecuting Authority. He's an aspirant prosecutor, um, and uh, so yeah, so he won the book. So I'm, I'm actually totally separate to this. Um, had arranged, he had, he had contacted me to arrange to come and give training to his group of aspirant prosecutors at Benoni Magistrates Court because they do like as as part of their NPA training after they're obviously qualified as lawyers. Um, they go through a whole process. I think it's about a year long. Uh, they're called the Aspirant Prosecutors Program, 
And part of that, they get based at courts at various points in time to get some obviously courtroom experience. And he actually, separate to this whole process, arranged that for me to come and give some training there to his group of aspirin prosecutors. So I'm actually doing that t- tomorrow to give okay. him some training on you know, different types of psychologists, how to cross-examine them in court, and how does a sort of mental observation process happen, you know, if, if work, if someone who's arrested for a crime, you know, needs to, you know, there's a concern about their mental health status and they get then sent off in terms of the Criminal Procedure Act for that 30-day observation. So I'm going to be sort of speaking to them about all of those concepts. So I'll actually be presenting, Henry, the book in person tomorrow. So there you go. Uh, but we're giving the book away, thank goodness. We'll give away another book again at some point in the future, I think. Also, Jared's new book is coming out relatively soon. So we'll also give away one or two of those when that happens. Um Date again, just remind us. When well, is the book originally coming? I thought, and I don't know if we mentioned Has it before, it that or? it was July, but um, I was speaking to the, to the um, publisher's Penguin and they said that we're looking at probably August. Okay. So basically a month, a month afterwards. So yeah, and they seem quite happy with it. Um, we were doing the design of the new cover, so it'll have, the cover will be similar-ish to the first one. So there's a bit of, you know, recognition, like brand recognition when you see it in the shelves, but obviously different enough that people realize it's not the same book. So yeah, it's quite exciting when you start to see the cover come out. Then it kind of feels like it's it's becoming a real book, and that's that's quite fun. So that'll be something to cozy up with as we get towards the end of winter. Mm, so there you go, something to look forward to. Another thing to look forward to is our discussion today about a crime that we haven't covered on the podcast today, a crime that you describe as psychological terrorism, um, a crime that has a significant impact on people, it seems, Um and uh, yeah, one of those yeah, one of those crimes that gets under your skin and seems to ca- and can have quite long-standing repercussions and and take you from a, from a normal God-fearing citizen to 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 paranoid and concerned about um, how you're going to get help and get out of a situation. Let's set the scene. This takes us back all the way, and also there's an interesting kind of entry point for you to this this case, which you can tell us about. But this this case takes us back to the Soccer World Cup to 2010, to a time when mm. um, potholes were, were filled in automatically. It Bridges seems, were and, painted. And the, the water was beautiful. <laughs> and we were lied to that the Gau train was, was part of that whole process. to glossy get Glossy you know. and beautiful. <laughs> exactly. Gau train stations weren't just the lying highways, dormant yeah. on the, in the middle of roads, um, unfinished and shoddy. We can talk about that. I, can, I could go on about that subject for days. But anyway, let's talk about 2010 and the situation you find yourself, found yourself in, Gerard. Who reached out to you? Yeah, so as you said, it was kind of just the end of the FIFA World Cup in South Africa. Um, lots of sort of euphoria around that, how, how it went off quite well. And I get a phone call from um, someone who I had known. She's a psychiatrist. I won't mention her name just for her own privacy's sake. But she'd been a psychiatrist or specialized in psychiatry at um, the University of Pretoria and then based at Vescopi Psychiatric Hospital in Pretoria where I was working as a psychologist. So, you know, as part of my jobs at, at, the, at, the, at the hospital, it would be, you know, helping develop and train psychiatrists in sort of more psychological concepts. So I had known her since then. And, and when I moved off in 2001 to join the police and she carried on with her career, so kind of literally jumped forward like nine years later. And I haven't really, I don't think I'd had much contact, if any, um, with her. And she says, hi, it's, it's me. And, you know, I got a bit of a problem. So, um, I'm being stalked. Okay. So stalking. What is stalking? Well, basically, it's unwanted, repeated sort of contact and communication with another person. There are lots of different definitions, but that kind of seems to be the core of, you know, most definitions have those, that sort of, you know, unwanted, repeated contact um, with another person as a central issue. Um, 
And essentially, like you said, it becomes a psychological terrorism. The victims in South Africa specifically don't get help for this because the, not just because they often don't know who to turn to, but because the cops don't don't understand this. So in South Africa, there isn't a crime. You can't be charged with a crime stalking. So I often say to people, if you have someone who's harassing you, if you want to use that word and sending you repeated messages, they might be of an unwanted or a vulgar nature potentially or threatening nature or, you know, damaging your car repeatedly as maybe an ex-boyfriend, whoever it might be, don't go to the cop station and the, and say, I want to open up a stalking case because they'll probably just, their brain will shut off right then most likely and they'll say, there's no such crime as stalking. And you take out a protection order or whatever the case may be. But what you need to do is look at what is this person doing in the process of stalking. And very often the little behaviors that they're engaging in would be a crime on their own, not a very necessarily very severe crime. So if I go and scratch your car with my car keys, um, you know, that's malicious injury to property or malicious damage to property, as some people like to call it. If I swear and send vulgar, rude, insulting sexual messages to you, that could be criminal injuria, which is a common law crime, insulting someone's dignity, or potentially if it's a sexual nature, it might be some crime under the Sexual Offenses Act. Or if I send you unwanted porn pictures of myself or that I've downloaded off the internet and just send them to you as part of this process, that is definitely a crime in terms of the Sexual Offenses Act. So often at the little, you have to look at the little behaviors mm. and go to the police and, and, and report those. But again, they're often not seen as very serious. Um, you know, someone keying your car, well, do you know who it is? Well, no, but I think it's so-and-so. Well, you know, that's not going to really go anywhere. So they might open up a case. They're not going to probably put a lot of attention to investigating it. And, and probably it'll be closed off very soon if they even open up cases. We've had cases where it's been far worse and we, we just couldn't get the cops to open up cases. So that is part of the difficulty and some of the victims here experience that, um, that people don't get help. And you know there are other options. Like I said, yes, if the, if the behaviors amount to a criminal case, you can try and force them to open up a criminal docket. How much will they investigate it? I don't really know. And ultimately, you know, even if you do find the guy who sent you these threatening messages, what the charges will be and what the punishment will be, it's not they're not going to go to jail for, for most of these little behaviors that are stalking related. Um, so you have to ask yourself in the end, has it stopped the stalking? What has it achieved? Has it increased the danger level by doing this? That might, you know, sometimes that happens, you know, to open up a criminal case has never made anybody happy. So you kind of almost have to get some professional advice. And, and like I said, the cops, unfortunately, are not the ones typically you're going to be able to give this to you as to what's the best way to deal with this. Sometimes it's just sort of ignore it and it'll go away. Other times, yes, we need to make threats to back to them, not, not threats to harm them, but threats that we will open up a criminal case. Uh, you can, for example, take out protection orders. Um, if it was an ex-partner, you can take out a protection order in like the Domestic Violence Act allows for you to do that or a current partner even. Um, if it's a non-intimate partner history between the two of you, you can then use the Protection from Harassment Act. But again, and the, these are kind of just, uh, how do you call it, um, interdicts by the court saying, stop contacting Jane, stop yeah. doing this, stop phoning her, stop, stop X, Y, and Z. And if the person does that, they can get arrested and then charged with contempt of court. So basically, what I think what I'm hearing here is that this is a crime that we haven't really totally kind of come to grips with mm -hmm. as a society and the legal system hasn't totally got its head around um, and that there's not a, a simple and effective solution if you are being stalked. I mean, recently in the, you know, if you look at, I, I set the landscape here from kind of Kim and Kanye, 
I mean, you know, recently the, yep. the discussion in the press that Trevor Noah kind of sparked yeah. a big discussion around by talking about how a woman even as powerful as Kim Kardashian, you know, with, with yeah. the influence and the, and, the, and the wealth that she has, um, finds it difficult to avoid the unwanted communi- kind of constant communications mm. of, a, of, of, of a powerful man like Kanye West as well. Um, right through to this, you know, so if you put it in that context, just as a starting point, it just goes to show you how, how, mm. how disempowered people just on the ground, your average yep. citizen in a country like South Africa might be in where a case like this to rear and, its and head. It's, so, a, it's such a broad thing. You said you got the, Kim and Kanye, which is intimate partner, ex-intimate partner stalking, which is probably the most frequent type of stalking you get. The relationship ends. This guy doesn't want to leave her alone. Sometimes starts to harass her if he hears she's dating someone new um, or just sends his insulting message. That's all stalking behavior. Yeah. You got that, which is the most common. Then you got on the other side, which is kind of, to a large degree, what we see with this case as it'll, you see it unfold, is your stranger stalker. Mm. Um, to anything in between, you know, someone who's a casual contact from work or in your social kind of environment to you know, um, delusional people who stalk celebrities, yeah. um, et cetera, and all po- political figures because they don't like what they're doing and they send these harassing messages, et cetera, to that individual over and over and over. So it's quite a broad spectrum also. It's not just one kind of stalker. And all of them, their threat level will be very different. Um, you will want to manage them differently. There's no one standard cut and dry answer that you do how you deal with this in every single case because, like I said, some cases it might be totally correct to get a protection order or open up a criminal case. Others, that that's the, the worst thing you can do in terms of the person's safety. So you kind of have to have people who know what they're doing to understand, or in other words, assess the level of threat and then decide on an appropriate strategy for that particular case. And then we just don't really seem to have that here in South Africa. And a police service that can support those kinds of systems. Yeah. Even your protection orders, you often find that the cops don't respond when the victim comes forward and says, but I've got this protection order. He's outside. He did this. And, and we saw that Andrea Fento was murdered by her boyfriend who then fled to Brazil. I think I've, we've discussed this or mentioned this in passing in some of the podcasts. And he's thankfully going back on trial in May this year. He was extradited. Um, good example there where she had taken out protection orders. He would transgress them by driving his car on the lawn of the family home. And the cops would do nothing or phone him and say, hey, stop doing that. And just didn't have the systemic backup to support a protection order system. Yeah. I think the other thing that's important just to set the scene for the crime as well is is just the nature of of the kind of communication landscape and the environment that stalkers find themselves in and the access to technologies yeah. that are available now that enable and empower the stalker in a way isn't it yeah in the old days what you'd have to kind of you know it was the old peep and tom you creep around and staring through people's windows or the heavy breathing in the middle of the night on down the phone. And that, those are kind of your options or, you know, flashing in the street. I don't know. But um, today, you know, there are so many ways for the stalker to stalk. Yeah. Like in the old days, like you said, you know, you had to, let's say you wanted to send a threatening harassing or threatening mess, mail. I mean, you had to do it by mail yeah, in the old days. Sure. So you first had to, you know, get a piece of paper, write it down, rewrite it, get your thoughts in your head, Cut get a out stamp, all the then individual find out where letters. the person's address is, which you couldn't have the internet. You didn't, there was no internet, so you could just quickly yeah. Google the address. And then by that time, often people are you know, kind of calmed down or just given up because it's too much of a hassle. Yeah. But now with Twitter and WhatsApp and I mean, just cell phones in general and email and, and all these other public platforms. And the amount of information that we put into the digital space. Yeah, you do things that you shouldn't do because you're in that heat of the moment. It's so easy to send off these things and communications or when you're drunk. I mean, who hasn't sent a drunk 
SMS to an ex-girlfriend or someone, you know, when you're sort of feeling all sorry for yourself at two in the morning, saying, mm. please, honey, you can't we get back together. It's it's easy to do those things yet and very quick, which we might have not done if we'd had perhaps had to spend a little bit more time or invest more time doing it. So it does technology has made it easier for people to store quicker. Um, and also more effectively, you can really destroy people's reputations quite quickly by posting things on on various sort of sites. Yes. So there's lots and lots that we haven't got our yeah. head around. And, you know, and if we're talking about uh, typically are these crimes against women? Almost do we find always. The majority? We do, yeah, I would say the majority of the victims are, are, are women that have been stalked. I've had it the other way around, sure. women stalking men, and that often tends to be quite, I've seen some, some of the, probably the most vicious level of stalking was done by some female stalkers who can, who really just, one was a quite a sort of um, IT wizard, and she had a website about this guy. She okay. posted horrific things that were not true about this guy, but really not the kind of things you want attached to your reputation about rape and this and that and the other and things that he allegedly did to her, which all turned out to be false. She would hack into his emails she would send emails from the email his email address to people he would she would phone potential employees because he was a contractor so he would work on various you know projects for different people he would phone their employer and start to say what you know what he allegedly did and harass the company to the point where they would say look we don't believe this lady but unfortunately she's making such a stir that this is bringing our name into the public eye in a negative way and he would sort of be sort of let go from these these sort of jobs that he was doing. So it really, really extended to quite yeah. some you know horrific type of just in terms of destroying someone's life kind of level we've seen from lady stalkers. But yes, the majority is going to be men. Yeah. And I think the point I was going to make is simply that you know we're being in a country as we've discussed many many times, which you know has not come to terms with dealing with a violent crime like rape for example which is you know if, uh, you know where you can be physically be, it's very obviously a, 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 a violent abusive horrible mm. crime mm. um you know we can't even deal with that so what are the chances that dick pics are going to are going to are going to land too hard with the, with the cops that's like, i guess mm. where we find ourselves so what advice do you in 2010 give to your friend to answer the question. So what, what do you do? Mm. I mean, she's calling you because not only are you a colleague and a psychologist, but you are, I'm, she's calling you because you're an active duty cop at the time and she, she needs some law enforcement assistance. Yeah, so, and, and she sort of said, look, I, I, depending on who it is, will influence how she wants to take the matter forward. So if it's a patient who might be seeing her for some of these types of issues, um, self-esteem issues or whatever, um, and this is kind of a, a manifestation of some of those issues, she'd rather perhaps deal with it in that sort of treating context. Uh, if it's not, um, then she might, you know, want to go the straightforward sort of criminal case route, which I, I, I kind of, I could get an understanding for. Um, so yeah, so so essentially what I did is I opened up a case file at my office. So I didn't open up a criminal case at the police station. I uh, opened up an inquiry file that allowed me to sort of um, take that, that, that number that had been sending her these messages and start to approach the cell phone providers because it was a cell phone number uh, for some detail about that phone number and also the handset that the phone um, that that SIM card had been inserted into. So when you say you're opening a case now, how is then that that met by your colleagues, because I, I assume you're not going to be doing this solo. So how do you go back to your colleagues and say, okay, you know, how do, what's, the, what's the initial response to, okay, this case is now on the table? 
you know from your from your team if you like yeah right. i mean with this we 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 often took took on cases from various sources typically yes it's a cop somewhere that we've or a case we've heard of that's existing that we would go get involved in but uh nothing stopped us in in these type of cases from getting involved um you know, we, as I said, we, my boss always said, don't sit and wait for cases to come to you. If you hear of something or you know of something that's relevant to your mandate, it's your job to get involved. So um, th- that was an issue. So I mean, they, the people in my unit didn't bat an eyelid. I mean, essentially what happened in this one, which wasn't really the what we typically did, and it was almost like the quarry case, which we discussed long ago, is that I ended up becoming the investigating officer of this case. It became my docket. Um, and as you'll see, as things went unfold, there was somewhere along the line, one of these victims had opened up a case and we'll get, we'll discuss that in a moment. And I used that as the, the case docket um, and took it forward, took it to court, et cetera, as it progressed. Okay. And I mean, what, what are your expectations? I mean, you'd expect that somebody who's stalking and you are now trying to get access to cell phone records, you'd assume that somebody who's stalking is, is, is attempting to hide their identity they're not using their recad you know uh, cell phone number that's got all their address and details uh, attached to it yeah i'm trying to think 2010 whether the rika yeah, um, concept was yet yeah. in because this guy had get my point yeah, i yeah. mean if it's it's not his contract it's he's not going to be using his contract phone that he's got his address that they're yeah. sending his monthly bill to yeah, so that's what one assumes. Of course, you if you make those kind of if you only stick with those assumptions, you you can you know you never assume the level of people's stupidity. That's the no, first obviously thing. you've got to get <laughs> but yeah, I mean take the, the obvious off the, first. the logical thing. But and and again, people don't often understand how and what the police can do to trace you. I mean, this is sort of the old school stuff from a couple you know twelve years ago. By now, it's sort of mm. kind of public knowledge. But back then, people really didn't have an inkling i mean even perhaps some of the listeners don't don't wouldn't what we're about to say is sort of new stuff to them mm. but um so a lot of lay people who aren't in the crime world you know don't really know what the police can and cannot do to trace them whether it's from computer stuff to cell phone stuff to you know dna etc cetera, etc cetera. so so yeah so so what information did you get access to and, and how long did it take you to kind of initially kind of put together enough info that you could now start evaluating what's going on here yeah, so first, I think we've discussed what the messages, the content of the messages were. So they were basically well, kind of, yeah, yeah. hi, Doc, I'm so horny, I need to SMS you while I wank. You know, it's, it was sort of very sexualized stuff and often little MMS videos. Remember, this was the days before WhatsApp and, and the things we typically use now, to all SMS and sending videos of a person masturbating, which turned out to be our offender. Okay. Um, so yeah, so basically what I did is took Knew my... Knew he was a doctor, so she's knowing that... Yeah. So she's assuming this is somebody that's that has some kind of knowledge of her and her life. Yeah, it wasn't a random sort yeah. of number that you would maybe sure. send to. Um, so yeah, so basically the, the next step was to um, get a, what we call a section 205, which is a subpoena issued by the court to the cell phone company to force them to hand over information. So he asked for, you know, the, the detailed billing of that SIM card that was being used. Because obviously you can make something private number when you make a phone call, but you cannot SMS a private number it'll show the numbers. I mean, yeah. if you think about it, have you ever seen an SMS come in and it says private number? No, there's always a number. So that maybe he didn't realize that. I don't know uh, at the time. So that we had the number that was sending the messages. We asked the cell phone company, please give us the, all the incoming and outcoming calls, SMSs, MMSs, whatever, um, from this particular number for a period of two months. Um, 
So they would be able to access the photographs, the videos, clips themselves. So, so the cell phone companies, this is what a lot of people don't know. Cell phone companies don't, they keep a record of the fact that an SMS was sent from number A to num- cell phone number B. They don't keep, on the cell phone companies don't keep the actual SMS, like, okay. hi, Jane, this is Frank, okay. or the actual videos or pictures. Okay. So that you would get from the victim's phone if they still obviously have them and they didn't delete them. Yes. So, um, so I mean, I've had people who've been scammed. Um, um, one lady said she's worried that uh, somebody's going to get her messages, so she phones a cell phone company and obviously got them to some dodgy guy who said, Yes, I can delete your message. I can delete the content of your messages from the system. You've got to pay me a thousand rand. They don't keep that. It's just just a, too much volume of information for them to keep the actual messages. But there'll be a record of them. Um, so yeah, so that took. Uh, so the next day we got that subpoena from the court, handed it over to the cell phone provider, and it took about three weeks, which is kind of back then the standard time for us to get this information back from the cell phone provider, uh, unless it's a life and death scenario. I don't know nowadays if they wait longer or less. And we could see that there was about 480 communications, mainly outgoing SMSs and MMSs, no phone calls, uh, a couple attempted incoming calls, but that's it. So that sounded strange because, I mean, anybody of us that have a phone, we use it to make calls, receive calls, send messages, receive messages. There's kind of diversity of the standard types of communications, but this didn't. So I knew that that was a number that's would have, you know, that's the troublemaking number. Then we also, though, asked them to say, but not only check this SIM card. Attached to that SIM card, what handset, what cell phone, what physical cell phone was it being used in? And from that, please provide us with the serial number. And from that, we can then say, what other SIM cards have been used in the lifespan of this handset, specifically kind of in the overlapping period that we're looking at talking about now when these messages were sent. And that showed us that there was a second SIM card that it was being used at the overlapping time frame uh, as the as the as the suspicious SIM card, um, and that had about two thousand nine hundred communications, which was calls made, calls received, SMSs received and sent, etc. So we knew, okay, this guy is putting in a pay-as-you-go co- co- SIM card into his handset, causing trouble, taking it out and putting back in his normal some card that his friends and family and employer would have. And that's the one we then said to the psychiatrist. We thought, well, we can either then go through again another subpoena for that on that number for who's the owner of that number, the you know ownership details. But I said, you know, this is most likely probably a, a patient. So I said to the doctor, take this number, run it through your sort of database of patients, tell me if it pops up. And then it did. Okay. So there you go. Case solved. Thank well, you very much for listening, everybody. <laughs> well, that's, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people might say, well, that's it. I've done my job. You know, I'm going to perhaps charge this guy for this, for this particular doctor's case. Um, and you, I suppose you could say you would be fully justified to do it. You've got a complainant. You found the suspect. End of story. But what we could see, though, from that first detailed billing on the suspect hand, uh, SIM card was there were about 40 different ladies or people, at that point we didn't know who they belonged to, 40 different cell phone numbers that this guy had been sending messages to. And, and one of them had received up to 41 messages. So essentially that detailed billing of the two-month period gave us um, basically his victim list. So what you've what you've got now is a prolific stalker, and yeah. this is a so this is an example of some good detective work. Well done, Jared, just to kind of follow the clues to a quick conclusion or to a quick name. But now you've really given yourself a a, a, a big load of work to do 
because you've got tens and tens of victims here. Well, literally, so the work time is about 40 all of a sudden. So how do you feel at this stage? I mean, it's like, okay. I mean, obviously, exciting that you, you're you onto someone who's a, a substantial offender here. Yeah. Um, but daunting that you've got a, a fair amount of, of work ahead of you. Yeah. So like I said, you know, one could have had the view you're totally justified to leave it at that. Um, but that not, that's not how we work. And also, I mean, if you work on serials, you're used to, as the investigation goes uncovering more cases yeah this guy's a serial stalker so for me it i don't think i ever thought like oh my god here's more it's, it was exciting like, like like i said and i thought well you know this is much bigger and i also knew that probably just this one complainant with these types of messages the court's not going to take it very seriously mm. but if i went with five ten fifteen okay maybe even 40 40 people um that that's a massive case and the court would have to look at that very seriously so yeah. we went ahead and nice to just have a break from, you know, your typical serial murders, you know, yep. that, that fill, fill your day most of the time. But in, of course, never, never knowing what this guy could escalate to, you well, know, and absolutely. that's what a lot of cops don't get. They see, oh, man, so he's, so he scratched your car, so he's insulted you. Those are little things. Uh, that's not very serious stuff. But you have to do the assessment to look at it. Where is this coming from? Where is it going to? What's the potential, and can we prevent further harm? Maybe prevent this person from being murdered or raped or whatever. Yeah. And that's also why people don't get stalking because they see it as like oh, this is just irritating stuff. Um, what could this potentially lead to? And we all seen enough true crime series. There's, the story often comes up of the of the partner um, who just doesn't go away, and eventually that it leads to murder. You know, it leads to where the victim is is raising red flags kind of along the way but not being listened to and eventually mm. um you know the person feels emboldened or empowered enough to or kind of like they've gotten away with enough that now they're willing to maybe take the next step um so so where, where do you go from here where do you you know how do you okay you've got now where, where do you start are we going to contact all these all of these potential victims now are we going to select a handful of them where do you go are we going to focus just on the case of your friend well so obviously from her i've taken a comprehensive statement by now we downloaded any images she had that this documentary you know forensic proof of these messages um and the next step was, to, I, I kind of had to make a decision. There were a few ladies who got one or two messages out of, the, out of that list of, of 40 people. Um, and I focused, I think I focused on the ones that had, say, 10 or more messages, because that's now, you know, if you've got one message, you might say, oh, I got one message, I don't really, who cares, I don't really Some care. Creep, yeah. But, you know, but more, it's more serious, it's repeated. Um, the person might be a bit more motivated to say, yeah, I'd like the bastard who made my life uncomfortable for a month or two or three, mm. you know, to have some consequences. So we started to phone those, and it all turned out to be ladies um, that had received, say, I think 10 or more messages. Um, I think in the, in the end, we ended up with eight okay. ladies who we, we contacted more. Some said, look, I'm just not interested, yeah. uh, but I don't care. You know, they've stopped. I mean, it's great that you caught the guy. I'm just okay. But we had eight who said, yeah, I'm happy to go ahead. Um, one of those, if I recall correctly, had opened up a case at Bedford View Police Station. Okay. That became the docket that we used for the arrest and to go to court with. We piled all the statements into that particular docket. Um, and yeah, I mean, I mean, her particular instance, you know, she she was a um, she was an HR manager, 
um, she had received again same kind of messages, you know, very vulgar MMS videos about masturbating, etc. Um, another one, um, no, she had attempted, sorry, she had attempted to open up a case, gone to the police station. They basically laughed at her. You know, the guy said, "Let me see the video," and they called his buddies over. They all had a, a fat chuckle and said to her, "You know." Yeah, we'll take a statement, but go deal with this with Photocom. It's their problem. It's not a police problem. Oh. Yeah. So she was quite livid, and she then contacted people she knew who then said, you know, contact the head of the police station. I think this this particular one was not was, was not Bedford View. It was a different police station. And again, you know, once or twice, try to get hold of the state, the head of the station commissioner, and basically just never went anywhere and was rudely dealt with by the cops. The one that had opened up, I said, was at, at, at Bedford View. So when we went to go get that docket, it was six weeks after it had been opened up. I mean, there's nothing, nothing had been done in six weeks. There was a statement from the lady and the commander had written in the docket, you know, if possible, I don't know why if possible, um, get a section 205 like we'd done, a subpoena on this, on this suspicious number. And in six weeks, it hadn't been done. So clearly this detective was like, oh, this is a waste of my time. Yeah. Clearly the docket hadn't, she hadn't been given good advice because he would have said, I want, you know, get a section 205, not if you can. I mean, what do you mean? You just go to the magistrate's court and you apply for it. Um, and the docket hadn't obviously been properly inspected in six weeks because the the, man, the supervisor should have said, in fact, why haven't you done this? This sounds so unusual. This is ne- this never comes up in our conversations, this kind of behavior. Absolutely. What's going on at the police? So basically, we just took that doc. We said, we're taking this over for the investigation, met all the various ladies. And we had sort of from estate agents, a lot of them were estate agents, to a personal trainer at a gym, the HR lady that I mentioned now who tried vehemently to get a case opened unsuccessfully. Um, what turns out to be friends of friends of this particular guy we eventually arrested. But majority were state agents. The ones I met, I mean, he had a certain profile of ladies. They were all very attractive. Um, uh, sort of anything from the sort of early late 20s up to sort of a 48-year-old lady, but a very, very attractive lady. Okay. So we had a certain style of, 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 of woman. And then, of course, some of them we had identified who they were because I basically, once I started to realize that they were estate agents, I would take that list of 48 numbers. I went and got in that particular area, sort of east of Johannesburg, the, those knock and drop, um, what do you call it? Those, um, you know, where they advertise houses for sale, those little booklets. Okay. And literally page through, look, find sort of what I thought was a relative attractive lady and then check if that number appears. So, ah. you know, these are the days before True Caller, et cetera. Um, and so basically, just from that, so one, we're quite easy to determine from his profile. Uh, you know, my, my my ex was was, was an, an estate agent, and I, I you know, I worry about estate agents. I, I don't think at the time I realized I needed mm-hmm. to be a bit more concerned because, like, being a estate agent can be a ha- can be hazardous to your health. It's absolutely. I've always thought it's a very high. And <laughs> so there's not, this very is not the first time. Put yourself, your image in yeah. the public space. Don't not, you? not the first time that I've heard of estate agents being harassed, etc. I mean, like you say, you. A, you have your picture plastered over boards that are nailed into the ground or these type of booklets that are attached to, you know, stuck in newspapers and delivered to your house or freely available at shops. And wow, I mean, you're just basically anybody who's looking for someone to sexually harass, pays yeah. through, find one that you find is a, is an attractive photo and start to harass them. Or, of course, they also meet strangers. Jose yeah. de Silva, remember, but in that exactly. case, he was meeting with estate agents yeah. to get his little sort of psychological kicks out of it. Um but of course, you know, you're at a show house on the weekend alone very often in an empty house with yeah. strangers coming in to say, hi, I'd like to have a look at the house. High risk, you know. It just uh, underlines how careful we've got to be with the kind of, with what information we put out about ourselves out there. If you think it can't happen to you, 
problem is that it can. Um, tell us about the psychological effect on, like, on your friend, for example. What kind of, what kind of psychological effects was she experiencing, and 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 what kind of, what kind of things did you see in 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 the victims? So, you know, what is typical as far as the impact on on victims? Mm. So you become very paranoid. Um, of course, you you don't know who this is. So is it in your someone in your close circle of friends and acquaintances, work colleague, people at the gym, um, etc. That you might be running into, and a lot of these people said, I, I that my I just sort of became socially withdrawn because I don't know who this could be. Mm-hmm. You know, is it someone I went on a date with who's now harassing me? Every time your phone rings or you hear an SMS coming in, you kind of get like, oh. Is it going to be from this person? So you have this constant level of anxiety. Um, you know, someone in the shop smiles at you. You think, is this the person? Yeah. You know, so it completely, you know, totally gives you a, a sort of a paranoid state of mind, permanent level of anxiety. You, you know, some of them felt that they couldn't do show houses anymore because, you know, they don't know if the next person walking to the front door is that individual or they would only do show houses if they could have a male colleague which sort of influences your work sort of environment and context. So, a lot of them just withdrew and, and their work became a place that they became terrified in. Mm. Um, like I said, the, the, the personal trainer is like, is this one of my clients who, yeah. you know, personal training, you're up close and sweaty and, you know, with next to someone, scantily clad, and you're kind of wondering, is this weirdo the one? Yeah. It's a really kind of... It's that, it's that typical movie scene of the, the anxiety of walking across the dark parking lot to your car yeah. at the end of the day and not knowing if there's somebody lurking in the shadows. That, Absolutely. Uh, that terrorism seems like the right word. Absolutely. And because this, the, the messages often contained personal information, the sense yeah. of, you know, hey, Doc, how are you doing? Um, literally, some of them who would say, I was at your show house today. Uh, I was upstairs while you were downstairs busy with the clients, and I found a vibrator in the, in the homeowner's closet, and I started to think about you and what I'd like to do with you and okay. ref- referring to the one had a daughter, referring to the daughter in the message. So it really was not, it was like that kind of stuff really freaks people out, understandably yeah. so. So who was this guy? Our suspect was quite a normal guy, to be honest with you. Um, his name was Brian Harvey. As mentioned, we can, he went to court and was convicted, so we can mention his name. Um, a very normal guy, you know. He, like I always say, he could have gone, like Joseta Silva, could have gone to school with me, you know. Um, we spoke similarly, um, you know, had similar sort of reference backgrounds, came from a stable family, oldest of two brothers, born in Zimbabwe. His father worked for a very well-known bank. They'd, you know, moved back to South Africa when he was 11, um, lived in Edenvale, you know, did his national service. For all means, had a happy family life. As I said, father had sadly passed away about two years before the arrest after being sick for quite long had a positive, loving relation with his mom. So nothing that you could say, this poor guy grew up in a bad household, you know, just normal family. Mm. Um, you know, had a long-term romantic relationship that was quite serious that ended about a year before the incidences due to religious differences between the, you know, the, the him and her and her family sort of didn't like, in fact, he wasn't the same religion. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, so Brian was just, he, we worked as a sort of manager at... Uh, sort of a chain of electronics stores. I'm not even sure they exist anymore. So had a decent job, you know. Um, he had been booked off on sort of temporary, I think it was temporary incapacity leave um, the December before, for a call December or January before these incidences. Remember the incidences, well, the complaints came to our attention in July. 
Um, and um, but primarily for a bit of depression and substance. Substances was a big issue in this guy's life, and that's how we actually ended up at the psychiatrist. Okay. His HR manager in the workplace referred him to the psychiatrist who specialized in substance issues. Okay. And of course, she was one of the victims, as was the HR manager. So she's the one I mentioned wow. earlier who did try to go to the cops, and basically the cops laughed at her. Okay. So he was targeting victims from his direct environment. The, the personal trainer he targeted went to the same gym. He was quite a sort of into gym and taking steroids and stuff like that. Um, and that she worked at the gym that he was working at or going okay. to train at. So again, some of the people, like a friend of a friend, um, so people from his sort of social stroke work environment, and then his complete strangers that he just literally saw their pictures and thought, oh, you're a hottie, and saw the number, obviously, and started to harass those people. So how did you come to be on his doorstep? So, of course, once we identified him that by, from the psychiatrist patient info, we had his address, we had everything, uh, we finished getting all of our statements that we had like in the end eight ladies and we then um, went to the court and applied for a warrant of arrest. Now that always makes it a bit safer for the cop because if you have a warrant of arrest, the court has ordered his arrest or her arrest, whoever it is you're arresting, based on what you've presented to the court. So they can't really sue the cops now if for you know inappropriate arrests, etc., because it's a court order. So it is a level of protection. In some cases you'd get that in some cases, the, the circumstances don't allow you to take the time to go get an arrest warrant, and you are totally justified with arresting someone directly. Um, like if you witness a crime, you don't have to run from the court. You can just arrest the person straight away. Or if we're chasing a serial murder and we track them down, we don't know who they are necessarily, but we're tracing the cell phone like the quarry guy. We can just, you know, when we get him, arrest him. But here we felt it's more appropriate and safer for us to get an arrest warrant, which was then issued the same time we applied for a search warrant for his house because we were now obviously looking for the electronic devices, um, substances because he obviously had been treated for substances. Uh, he'd, in some of the messages, he'd mentioned a little scenario, fantasy scenario about young kids watching him through the window while he masturbates. So we said, oh, we're going to request uh, this, that they look for child pornography, um, you know, you name it. So quite a broad number of items What listed. were his drugs of choice? Was he Alcohol or drugs, and all, you know, no cat, if I recall cat, correctly, yes. yeah, cat, and of course steroids and a bit of weed. I think was also part of his cat. Horrible stuff. Yeah. So, okay. so we, as I said, we got people from the Hawks to help us download all the messages. So we had the sort of the the the, the, the forensic evidence of the messages and the pictures. Uh, and once we were ready, I think fourth of August. So basically, just over a month, we we applied for it, got the warrant of arrest by from Germiston's Magistrate Court. And um, basically, I think it was the next day we arranged. I mean, we had a whole bunch of people. We had drug unit canine dogs. We had um, people from the National Crime Scene Management Unit to obviously do the scene and collect stuff. We had, um, uh, who else did we have? Cyber people to come and seize and secure the sort of electronic um, mm -hmm. stuff that we were looking for. So there was probably, I think, maybe about six or seven different vehicles, about 20 people. So you bought um, it, Jared, you bought it. People from my, yeah, people from my unit. Um, Just get me everyone. Yeah, and that's quite a lot. I mean, I said we've arrested serial murders with far less people than, than, than this amount. But look, nice in stark contrast to the kind of initial response of officers at station level. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's nice to see that again, like, you know, at ground level, the one reality, and then when it gets to, when the when the when the rubber hits the road, Jared brings it. Yeah. 
So um, yeah. as luck would have it, I always say I was stuck in traffic uh, that morning from Pretoria traveling to sort of the Mother oh, okay. Fontaine area. Um, Yanni, who's Colonel DeLonga, who's my, we've mentioned him a lot in his series yeah. and in the book. Um, he was there early because he's always early for everything. And he actually <laughs> phones and says, listen, the guy, I see a guy who I think is our suspect leaving. He's obviously going somewhere to gym. I don't know. So okay. I said, look, grab him. Um, I'll, I'll catch up with you. So luckily the other vehicles were already waiting for us to get the operation going. Mm-hmm. And they pulled him off. I think it was like six different cars. Pulled him off with lights and sirens on the side of the road. He must have really just shattered Brian himself. Brian must have, yeah. He must have um, gucked. And then they basically took him back to the house because obviously we had a search warrant for the house. They did find the phone. He chucked the phone under the seat, but Yanni found it. And that was the phone he had been using. Okay. And we went back to his house, informed his mom why we were there. And she had to unfortunately wait outside. Very obviously awkward and embarrassing for her with all these cars outside your house. Yeah. And um, started to search the house. And what did you find? So obviously I stayed outside. I had the drug people and the, the sort of forensic people and crime scene people do what they needed to do. Um, they did find drugs uh, which turned out to be steroids. They found cat. Um, obviously, the phones we had that seized from the car. Um, what is your priority on that day? So that morning, what are you, what are you doing as the kind of lead investigator on this case? So I'd just be like obviously making sure that the the, the the various teams of people are doing what they need to do, and of course prioritizing who needs to go in first. Do we let the dog unit go in first? Do we let the sort of crime scene people first go in? document everything and and let make sure that they're doing their job and this we've we've secured the crime scene and while the necessary people are doing their job yeah. uh, obviously uh, his brother arrived shortly thereafter so i had to you know speak to his brother and his wife about what's going on obviously spoke to his mother tell her what's going on um the media arrived and obviously did just a quick interview to explain what was happening um so basically it's 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 still your case you're in charge of coordinating but of course, you have these experts that need to be able to do in the space to do what, what they are trained to to do. And of course, briefing them as to what we're looking for and what yeah. we expect to find, uh, et cetera. And what are some of the important things that you do come across? Like I said, we, we got uh, CAT, the drug yes, CAT. Okay. Uh, we got uh, the, these the, the steroids, which he said he did obtain illegally, uh, and the cell phone. And those are the sort of key three things. And, okay. and obviously, they would then get these devi- the electronic devices looked at but i guess what i was asking is anything else of interest yeah any child pornography or yeah and we didn't find any child pornography but that was definitely what we were then going to be looking for which we would have expected to probably be digital so we wouldn't have seen it at the time okay and and what's his you know obviously shocked initially at being arrested but then what's his kind of demeanor as the as the day unfolds yeah so i mean he was calm i mean he was obviously shocked when he got when they all pounced on him but then he was just quiet and, and didn't you know wasn't aggressive verbally or physically and he was obviously handcuffed and you know we had taken a colonel mcintosh who was a well-known policeman and sort of friend of ours who's massive i mean he we always call him my mac up because uh, if you want a big guy who people really just don't fight and argue with, you take uh, old Mac, and he's a huge, tall guy, very big, um, and you kind of tend not to cause trouble where Mac's around. Okay. So, you know, but in general, I don't think he would have probably caused much trouble. Look, um, you've got to think this is a guy that's got a, you know, you uh, has a history of psychological issues, has been off work recently because of that. Mm-hmm. Um is this how do you, do you treat him as somebody who's a potential risk to himself as well? Yeah, I mean, you never know. Um, you know, like I said, he had been, the psychiatrist had told us he'd been treated for depression. So you don't know how someone's going to react uh, in the coming days or yeah. weeks uh, leading up to the trial, etc. cetera. Um, and like I said, we never treat, we never, you know, when 
I know this, I'm sure there's a lot of cops out there or some cops out there who, when they get a suspect, it's kind of like, haha, I caught you, you stupid moron, you know, and kind of, you know, put them in their place. But, you know, I just, what's the point? We don't have to do that. We've caught the guy. We've got our evidence solid. That's my satisfaction in getting him convicted in court. Um, so we've always found it better to 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 work with your suspect than, than have, have an antagonistic relationship. Um in our research shows you that a lot of people want to confess. I think up to fifty percent of people will confess if you, as the cop, don't screw it up by being a total, you know, moron. And because mm. I mean, if you think about it, I'm not going to. If you're going to be an idiot towards me, you're like, well, I'm not going to confess. No, Do your bloody job. So yeah. we treated him decently. We then afterwards took him to um, the police station. I think it was at Bedford USAPS. Okay. Um, he said he didn't want a lawyer present. We informed him, of course, of his rights to have yeah. one, etc., and he didn't have to say anything. Um, we didn't interview him at his mother's house because that, that was not sort of the right time and context. Uh, and yeah. we, of course, didn't know yet what we we're going to find. Yeah. So we took him back to the station and uh, myself, Yanni, and Mac, and we did the interview, again, as I said, cooperative from the start, which we appreciated, um, and took a very thorough sort of what we call warning statement where we ask him questions. He tells us what he wants to tell us. And he said, yep, you know, it's he would send these things when he's on his taking cat and when he's under the influence of alcohol, etc., And he admits that that drug we found was cat um, and sort of, you know, very apologetic. And it was a sort of difficult to explain why he did it. It was sort of excitement while he was under the influence. He, you know, sexual excitement, of course, obviously. And he said, no, it wasn't his plan to meet any of these people. You know, and he made up all these little scenarios that he would describe to them. Um, did he have any healthy female relationships i mean you know and i mean not just friendships but you know intimate relationships so so you had unsuccessful in love so i i think overall yes so that he did have that relationship which ended about a year before these incidences because of the religious differences um but i don't think he, he wasn't sort of a ladies man that could easily well you know move on after a period of mourning of that relationship ending and you know, chat and go out and put himself out there. So uh, some of those ladies said, you know, I often felt sorry for him because he'd had this relationship ended and tried to set him up with a few people, but it didn't, didn't go anywhere. Um, um, so I think he elicited sympathy from ladies, but I don't think, you know, he wasn't the, you know, the most attractive guy on the planet. So it's not like ladies were throwing them, themselves at him. So I do think he had a bit of social awkwardness or, you know, perhaps difficulty in, approaching people maybe um yeah. and obviously having substance issues doesn't doesn't help in terms of your of your behavior yeah i mean did why do you what's your opinion of why but what does somebody get out of this kind of behavior i think it was for him the the safety of engaging in a sexual exciting way that maybe the fact that he knew it's wrong was added to that excitement but in a way what he thought was very safe that he would never be caught. So this became a stimulus for his masturbation. So he, he would be masturbating while he's having this. And some people would respond, not positively respond, but sort of like, who the hell are you? But even responding back with bugger off, you're a creep, I'm going to call the cops, open up a case, you're interacting with the victim, yeah. with the suspect. So he's still getting feedback. Yeah. Um, and it was, again, you know, when you masturbate around these things, it's like conditioning, it's a positive reinforcement. Mm. So in that way, you couple a positive reinforcement, which is your orgasm free masturbation, with your negative behavior, it becomes then sort of a reinforcer for your behavior. Mm. And like I said, in a way that he felt was safe because he thought he would never get caught. You have a go. So what, what did he say? Yeah, so in his warning statement, which was from the interview we had with him, he said, and I quote, 
The purpose of sending these messages is hard to explain. It excited me, and while under the influence, it just felt good. Euphoria describes the feeling. The underlying motive was sexual in nature. It was never my intention to physically meet the woman I sent these messages to. The sexual scenarios I described were made up. So that's what he's saying. I mean, whether that's the truth or not, I don't, I don't know. He was honest about everything else. So we can perhaps say this is really what it, it was really just sexual and it made him feel great. And when he's on the drugs, it made him feel even better. Now, I wouldn't blame this on the drugs because drugs don't suddenly make you a stalker or a pedophile or a murderer. They do help lower your inhibitions. Yeah, enabler, yeah. um, so I, I think it, 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 I think it's quite safe to accept that this was a sexually rewarding interaction for him. Okay. Did he, so what was the period that he was, like, where did this start, as far as you know? Um, what was the whole period? Correctly, I think he was active doing this probably just almost a year long with various people. Okay. And he would rotate to the victims. So he'd send a couple of messages one night to a lady, and then he would leave her alone for two weeks. But, you know, the next day he's moved on to a different lady and then leave her alone for two weeks. So he was rotating and cycling through his victims. So for the victims, you'd have a night of these uh, unpleasant messages, but then it would stop. So you, it wouldn't be enough for you to say, I'm going to change my SIM card. Yeah. And of course, if you are like an estate agent, your SIM card is your office. That's how people get hold of you for business deals. You can't just somewhat change your yeah. SIM card every time you get harassed. You know, for other people who have like 10 contacts in their phone number, in their cell phone, and you know, the business, that's not a business number, it's, it's easier to just let your friends know, hey, I'm using this different number from now on. So he was quite smart in that sense that he would always have victims to to do this to, but he wouldn't have to always go looking for new victims because he could just cycle back to that one two weeks later and continue yeah. with her. And he wasn't daily harassment to the point that it was forcing no. all of these victims to change all of their details. Or even think it's worth going to the police maybe because like, oh, every now and then, yeah. two, three weeks, maybe get some messages and, you know, it's not nice, but... Yeah, did he have a sense of the kind of the scale and the seriousness of his offending. I don't think he really understood what it was like for these victims, no. Yeah, so how do you how do you kind of profile somebody like that who's not willing to go the whole hog? He's you know, he's his his sexual tastes are not taking him into kind of physical violence or physical contact, but mm. Yeah, so yeah, where do you kind of place him on in, well, from the a sort psychological of point of view? Stalking category, I'd sort of say he's more your acquaintance stalker because, like I said, most of the victims he had some association with. Then there was the estate agents. Um, so a bit of a st acquaintance and stranger stalker, I suppose you could mm -hmm. say. Sexually motivated. Um, would I have foreseen him escalating to something else? I don't think so based on what I saw up until that point when we arrested him. There didn't seem to be an escalation in the sense of he's now trying to find out where they stay and watching them, you yeah. know, through the window or as they move about going to work in the morning or going to their place of work and trying to sort of in, come into contact. The only ones, like I said, acquaintance stalkers or people in, already in his social environment. So I didn't get the idea that he's escalating to things that make me be concerned he's going to do something more serious. Okay. If we hadn't arrested him, it might that have been what would have happened six months down the line? I don't know but not based on, on what I was seeing at that particular point in time. But there is that kind of innate, like you say, lack of empathy, lack of ability to place himself in the situation mm. of the victims and understand the impacts of his crimes. And that, that problem can take you quite far as a 
criminal, can't it? Yeah, I think, you know, as long as you don't really get an understanding of what it's like for the victims, it's you're probably going to continue. And again, your substances give you that I don't really care kind of feeling at the moment in time, at least. Yeah. And then you're tracing the dragon, chasing the dragon for surely then you're, it's going to be one of those acts that potentially is leading you to to enact more yeah. complex versions of your fantasy. Yeah, I mean, I could. And again, it's, it's self-reinforcing because he, he has the orgasm at the, at the end of these sort of processes. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm one, there's not enough to say that he would have, he is or was a psychopath. I didn't get that information, get that impression. It wasn't just that he would have had to have more broad types of behaviors to be classified. What do you charge him with? So the final charge sheet, I think the original one that the, that the prosecutor at the Germiston court put together uh, had like, I think, six charges in total for our eight victims. Um, after it was reviewed, we ended up with 15 charges, six times compelling or causing a person 18 years or older to witness self-masturbation. That's section eight, bracket three of the Sexual Offences Act. Um, so that's great. So you've got charges under the Same sexual prosecutor. No, no. So, so this, do they this, switch the prosecutor out from the one yeah, that so, did the shoddy so, charges? So the senior prosecutor would have been the one to set the charges, and then there would okay. have been the actual prosecutor to go take it on trial yeah. was and would normally be a different person. Okay. So the advocates of the high court reviewed it, and this is their charge sheet, the six compelling are causing a person to witness self-masturbation, eight times criminal injuria, which is insulting the dignity of another person. That's for the actual texts. And then one times possession of drug, uh, methcathinone, which is cat. Um, so I was happy with that because I felt it reflected what they'd done. So you've got drug charges, you've got common law criminal injuria, you've got drug charges, like I said, and you've got charges in the Sexual Offences Act. And that's never nice. I mean, to, to say you've been convicted of drugs, you know, most of us, you know, might have friends who were convicted, you know, in the old days for being, being having some dacha on their body and, and yeah. at the time when they were searched. But, you know, when you say you've got a, charge under the Sexual Offences Act. Like, there's no way you're going to explain that as, yeah. <laughs> well, it was just, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry. And it, affect, it affects where you can work yeah. because, again, the, the, the law kind of says if you have that kind of a conviction, you can't obviously work with kids. You can't, you know, here or there and the other. And that just really does not look good on a CV if you say you've got sexual offences charges. Yeah. It's, it's really quite, quite serious. So when you're into that realm, you're kind of happy that this person is – that the, that's the society around this person going forward, if convicted, is going to understand the kind of the potential threat of this person in a in a yeah. more kind of uh, in a more concrete, more yeah. holistic manner. And and he was from the start prepared to plead guilty, which we appreciated, and he maintained it. A lot of guys in the beginning, oh, I'm going to plead guilty, and then that goes yeah, out the yeah, window. Yeah. So. Basically, but it still took three months. You know, you kind of think, wow, if you've got a guy who wants to be guilty, get this quickly in court because before yeah. he changes his mind or he gets a smart-ass lawyer who <laughs> convinces him not to. But basically, just over three months after his arrest, it was in court. Um, they'd written up a guilty plea with his advocate who was representing him. Um, in, in his support of his guilty plea, he said, look, you know, I was suffering from depression. Uh, I'd been admitted in a clinic the year before for two weeks, placed on temporary disability leave, had substance issues, Etc. And he sent them doing a self-destructive cycle, and no intention of approaching. Um, so basically, yeah. So essentially, it was heard. 
Um, but actually then was postponed uh, for some reason. Courts just love to postpone things. So I think it was actually eventually so only in January. To, so hard to plead guilty. I know it is. You'd think. I mean, I've had serial <laughs> serial rapists, the, the Moldage of case we discussed. Just lock me up. I've been stalking and murdering and killing people. Just lock me up. Oh, Hang on do. a minute. Yeah, I mean, like I said, the, the Moldage of serial rapists, which we discussed on this channel, was, was in court and, and, and uh, faster than this guy was who wanted to plead <laughs> yeah. guilty. So I think, yeah, so... So, yeah, I think it was January when eventually it was uh, set down and appeared and the court um, accepted his guilty plea, but then uh, remanded it to March for pre-sentencing reports, which is fine. I mean, they'll want reports from social workers, from correctional services, you know, what are appropriate sentences. And I didn't mind that. So they could have already asked for those to be prepared in, in November, mm. you know, um, but they didn't. Okay. So basically, we waited for the two reports. I think it, one was a social worker. Um, other one was a correctional services officer. I mean, they were fine. Um, and essentially, the court, I was quite surprised. At one point, it looked like they were considering giving him direct imprisonment, which I thought, wow, okay, I hadn't actually been expecting that. And I actually said in court to the prosecutor, to the magistrate, I, you know, I wasn't expecting that because I sometimes want to get the opinion of the investigating officer. I don't know if it would have been the appropriate for Brian and his future, because remember, we also have to consider this is someone who's going to be still has to function in society, even if you, they go to jail for a very short period of time, mm. they're going to come out. Yeah. And will they be worse off in terms of trying to get on with their lives and their future? You know, you know. So you have to weigh up the issues of revenge, punishment, this, that, and the yeah, other. Um, in the end, the court uh, sentenced him to three years correctional supervision, which I suppose you can say is like house arrest, uh, is what often people sometimes refer to it as. Um, and the conditions, you know, you're not allowed to obviously drink and take drugs and you can go to work and back at night. You have to be at home. You can't hang out in pub bars, etc. You can go to gym, church, and work is kind of the standard sort of thing. Okay. Um, and yeah, I mean, I mean, that was fine for me, that or a suspended sentence. Suspended sentence is perhaps you can carry on a bit more normally with your life because you can't have a suspended sentence and conditions usually. If you want to have conditions, rather go for correctional supervision. Mm. Um so I think that's fine. Um, and how are the victims feeling at this stage? I think they were all happy. I don't think any of them wanted him to go spend five, ten years in jail. Specifically yeah. the ones that knew him, they kind of felt sorry for the okay. guy. Um, and how is Brian feeling at this stage? Difficult to say. You know, we had a lot of court appearances, you know, as this thing was postponed and postponed. We would sit and chat each time. It was just me and him there. We would just chat. He just had to appear in court and the matter would be postponed. I had to appear in court. Any interesting insights on those conversations or, or thoughts? No, it, it struck me how much of a normal guy he was, you know. Yeah. Um, and I was trying to encourage him and say, you know, uh, specifically after he got sentenced, I said, look, three years, you can do a degree in three years. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to pretty much be hanging around at home, why don't you study? Come out with a qualification that would help you in whatever you want to do, whether it's a practical qualification or academic qualification that, you know, you can kind of, progress in your life you know you can still work in this time period but i mean improve yourself in this time period too clearly um, brian didn't take your advice yeah i mean look he, there were a lot of other punishments in the sense of you know he did spend five days in germiston cells because we arrested him on a thursday uh we weren't, weren't able to get him to appear in court by friday afternoon which meant he spent the week in a jail monday was Women's day ironically public holiday so he kind of did spend five days in the middle of winter in germans and cells which was i think not pleasant mm. um we had gone there to visit him and taken him a sandwich and a beanie um 
you know, he, he obviously lost his job. If you stalk your HR manager, that's going to happen to you. Yeah. Um, he was banned from going to any gyms of this particular brand of gyms in the country, which was the biggest brand of gyms, okay. uh, because one of his victims was a personal trainer there. Um, his family, I think, you know, really told him that they didn't like what he did. Yeah. You know, I think the really, really the guilt feelings from the family was justifiable. So for somebody um, already suffering depression, this is a, this is a, a, a heavy additional burden then yeah and i think those those were perhaps the more of the punishment that really made him had an impact upon him yeah um so yeah and you know sadly about a month later i get a phone call from his lawyer saying he'd committed suicide so you know for me that a lot of people would say ah oh, great ending for after what he done i felt i felt yeah not great and you know yeah. about the fact that that was the ending of the situation i i felt good in the sense that i treated him respectfully and decently throughout because you know, hopefully he wouldn't perhaps... And he'd come to justice. It. This is not somebody that no. you that was, was evading the law and he was... Yeah. Whether he, you know, whether he liked it or not, he was forced to kind of face up to what he had done and, yeah. and, and, and take responsibility for it. Absolutely. So definitely always sad for that to be the outcome. You know, sad that it was... That that was the end of the outcome. I think he had a lot of potential as a person to yeah. be a positive contributing member to society. It was still his choice, sadly, and that was a choice he made. So Brian, unfortunately, then is no longer with us. But um, what are, you know? What what are your takeouts from this case? And and what are you? What are the most key pieces of, of advice that you would give to people in South Africa in the current context? You know, of law enforcement. Um, what advice would you give to somebody who is a victim of of such um we typically say from from how you should behave is to either just not respond to any of these messages because even swearing at them and threatening them is just it's 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 feedback for them yeah so just do not respond or at best if you feel compelled just just send a sms you know please do not send these messages they're unwanted you know, not that that's a requirement for court that you have to say that these messages, you had to have told the person you don't want them to be doing this because that's like blaming you, the victim, for being stalked. But if anything, maybe just that. Uh, it's, it perhaps just re-emphasized to the court. See, they continue. They were unwanted to start off with. And then once they told them they're unwanted, they, they continued. So you cannot come and say, oh, I thought maybe. Um, so that's the first step. Um, when, when approaching the police? As I said, don't use the word stalking. Um, say you know, the best thing if and people don't always have the resources to speak to a lawyer that you know, or if you happen to know a prosecutor. Say, look, this is what's happening. Can you tell me what crimes these probably would be? And then they get a lawyer friend to help you draft your statement before you even go to the cops, covering in detail. I mean, a lawyer obviously was the best option because they can explain to you how to set out what's in a statement properly, what's happened, and and you can even say that I would like to open up a case of criminal injuria for this particular behavior. Then I also received these types of videos. I'd like to open up a case of what was, so almost giving it to the cops on a silver platter as mm. to what's happened and what law that corresponds with. Now we don't all unfortunately have access to lawyers, um, which is obviously one of the, that can help us with that. But again, rather don't use the word stalking and rather say what he is doing. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and in your statement you say, I'd like to open up criminal cases for these behaviors. And, 
Like again, and of, uh, and, and of course, try to get Trevor Noah to to point out the obvious to his to his global audience, and have an old mate who's the head of forensic psychology and an active yeah. duty cop at SAPS. Yep, and and it also differs whether you know who it is who's stalking you or not. Um, you know, because also in terms of protection orders, it is a possibility. Um, you can take them out, like I said, either domestic violence protection order or a straightforward protection from harassment protection order at the magistrate's court. Um, those are other options which sometimes will work and sometimes will not work. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't know who the person is, part of the Protection from Harassment Act actually says the court can instruct the cell phone providers to to give you the name and details of whose number that is or this or the, the IP addresses if you've got them to, to, to the service providers. So that act does allow you to actually almost, in a way, be the little investigator yeah. and, requ- and request those, issue a subpoena to the companies to provide you with that information. And what do we need to change to make these kinds of crimes, which I imagine are more prevalent in the digital age just because of the access that people have? You know, you don't have to, like I say, become a physical stalker. You can do it digitally and remotely. What 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 do you think we have to do as a society to better be better equipped to deal with these kinds of crimes. The difficulty is you're always going to get these morons who are going to do this. And that's typically your ex-intimate partner ones will do it. They'll know it's wrong. They'll just continue to do it. Yeah. Um, perhaps a bit of education, yes, to some degree, to people who are on that sort of brink of just not realizing that their behavior is, you know, when a woman says, I don't want to go on a date with you, that you should just stop. Um, they don't necessarily see, I mean, because stalking isn't always threatening behavior. Like you pleading and promising your love to someone who you've been on a Tinder date with, who you didn't like, and you've said, no, thank you. And then they continue to send you messages of, please, 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 can't we go out on a date? Please, I really like you. Please, I love you. And sending you flowers. That's also stalking. Yeah, That's even more difficult exactly. for the cops to understand. Yeah. They'll just think you're ungrateful. Um, but that's also stalking behavior. Um, and that can often be a person who just perhaps doesn't have the social skills to realize what they're doing is inappropriate. Unfortunately, that's their problem. Um, you know, do, do we edu- try and have education out there? It's, it's really difficult to say because yeah. of the broad spectrum. Um, also, the other thing I want to say, don't if you do think if you want to take legal steps, don't delete these things. Yeah. Save them, archive them, that they, yeah. they are available for the cops to actually download if needs be. Is there any kind of a time limit on when you can, you know, if somebody sends me a harassing video or what have you, is there a time limit that that I would not be that I would need to kind of raise this to the police? Um, no, I mean, we don't have a statute of limitations. I think okay. on any crimes, as far oh, as I, I know, okay. in South Africa. Okay. Um, so no, you can go six months later. Okay. You know, I, I might, from a threat assessment point of view, if it's been quiet for six months, I would probably say to you, leave it. Yeah. Um, because the whole idea is that you want to disengage from this guy, that yeah. they leave you alone. Engaging in legal steps with them brings you back into interaction with this person. Yeah. Can stimulate them to continue to stalk you. But if anything, now you're back interacting with this person. Yeah. Um, so sometimes from a purely threat assessment point of view, we always advise how what are we going to do to get you disengaged from this individual so that they bugger off and you can live your life normally. And sometimes it's counterproductive to A, take out a protection order, B, take out a criminal case because it could just bring you back into interaction with this individual. Yeah. So a very a tough crime to deal with, not necessarily an optimistic, super positive conclusion to this conversation. Like all things, I think it ultimately 
some in some way comes down to to leadership and um the fact that we kind of talk about the, we talk about the fact quite regularly that leadership has not necessarily been guided there's so much to do there's so much to fix mm-hmm. there's so many issues I mean, let's just talk about these crimes and end every episode feeling a little bit sorry for ourselves. I think that's just our lot, Gerard, to end the show feeling like, oh, there's no hope. <laughs> um, yeah, look, there's lots of challenges. Just, yeah, 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 yeah. It really helps if your um, university friend was, uh, is, is an active duty cop, clearly. Um, it's, yes, and sadly, it, that's for a lot of people to get something to happen mm. to someone who you know. Sadly, um, yeah. a lot of it nowadays. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. Um, this has been a conversation around Brian the Stalker, Brian Harvey, who unfortunately eventually committed suicide because it all became a little bit too much, I would imagine. Um, but a good outcome for victims. And if you find yourself in this kind of circumstance, then uh, unfortunately you you possibly have a difficult road ahead. But um, stick at it because it's one of those crimes that I think we need to understand better and we need to begin to learn how to deal with um anyway gerard thank you very much for a great conversation uh we'll be back next week with a with a with another chit chat next week i think we're going to do a bit of a mixed bag um and talk about um uh, various topics some current some past and uh yeah we'll we'll continue to bring you uh great stories of true crime from south africa and um even beyond in the in the weeks and months to come um Again, please do listen to True Crime South Africa as well. If you've not listened to the podcast, I'm sure you, if you listen to us, I'm 99.9% sure that you listen to True Crime South Africa. So get over there and check out what Nicole does. Um, we're looking to, we're excited to be doing some collaborating and putting our heads together with with our true crime community around the country. You can subscribe to our page on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Profiler Africa. We're available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Simply search Profiler. And you can follow us on Instagram or Twitter. Our handle's at Profiler Africa. And join our Facebook group now. Thank you very much, Jared. We'll be back again. Bye. Cheerio. Sleep easy, folks. Mm-hmm.